2: Hello, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Heavy Metal Tones with me, your podcast host, Tony Evans. Um, it, now, this one's a, a bit of a interesting one for me. Um, I've waited to almost 120 episodes before I could tackle this particular album. Uh, you would know by the uh, obviously by the description on you clicked on that it's "The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway" by Genesis. I'm a little bit nervous. I have to say. Um, with this one because I don't want to, you know me, I can be a little bit uh, flighty and um, sometimes a little bit, you know, the information um, gets mixed up with stories and all sorts of stuff and I get sidetracked. But I really want to give this one its due care and diligence because it is one of my favorite albums of all time, possibly truly my favorite actually. Um, And it, it means a lot to me and So I know it's not, you know, heavy metal, guys. I know it's not... Last week we did, you know, a brief um, trip into the early days of death metal and it was a very heavy and very dense and very aggressive uh, subject matter. And so I thought I'd like to try and do a classic album and something a little bit lighter and uh, a bit more, you know, a bit more... um, easy on the ear if you're going to listen to the album and here it is it's lamb lies down on broadway it's genesis um there's their their sixth studio album now those that don't know who genesis are so if you're new to the channel uh new to the show or new to rock in general maybe you might not know that i also do love um progressive rock which is you know again i did an episode called prog It's not a dirty word and it isn't a dirty word it's it's um it used to be uh, we used to hide in the shadows, um us metalheads and punk lovers we go and not listen t- tell people why I like Genesis or Yes or Van Graaff Generator or Jeffro Toll or God forbid, you know. Um I'll get some, you know, vilification. But uh so Genesis are one of the founding members of the UK prog scene. Um I mean, most of you young people out there in the world will listen to it and go, what do you mean? Isn't it all about invisible touch and I can't dance? No, um, dip further back into the years before Peter Gabriel left the band, uh, the, era, the era that I only listen to, I don't do anything after Gabriel. Oh, no, that's not true. Um, I like Trick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering. They were the two albums post-Gabriel that were very much like Gabriel, and then they changed their d- direction. And that's up to them. It's their choice. They can do what they want musically. It'd be boring if people stayed in the same lane every day, wouldn't it? Um, all their lives. So I'm um, good for them. I'm happy that they did what they did. They made lots of money. They got a lot of recognition. But the real true sort of artistic um, endeavours, I think, come early. Um, of course, with you know amazing albums like uh, "Fox Trot" and "Selling England by the Pound." Okay, you know, um, with brilliant uh, long epic songs and, like "Music Box" and um, "Supper's Ready" and "Cinema Show," they they were the sort of cornerstone of what I would truly believe. I truly believe that they are the uh, ultimate epitome of progressive rock music. Um, very much like yes. Uh, or very similar because they're pastorially english they're very flouncy and flamboyant they're very um uh, they're very sort of how i've all described and I sketched it to my mate John ages ago and i sort of sick by it. it was it's they're not an angular sounding band you know what I mean the musical form is quite soft and fluffy and cloudy even though it 's got strong parts in it. Don't put you off, and you know people go, "Oh no, don't listen to fluffy music." No, it's not fluffy, but what I mean is, it's not, it's not stabbing and angular and aggressive. It, it's it's heavy, there's a lot of heaviness in. Um, I mean, the fourth of firth is one of the best guitar solos ever written by Stephen Hackett, um, but it's it's just it's it's just very typically English. It's so English, you know. The Canadians did it well, as well, and some um, some American prog, but mainly it's or even Dutch um, but mainly it's the UK scene uh, and anyway this so that's the band right so it consists of uh, Peter Gabriel on vocals Phil Collins on drums Mike Rugford on 12th um, twelfth, string guitar and bass um, Tony Banks on keyboards and Peter Gabriel on vocals so that's the band and that's the core band um, of course once um, Pete left uh, and Stephen left. Um, it became, you know, uh, I think um, Rutherford took toll of most of the guitar parts and vocals were taken over by Phil Collins. And he does a good job, particularly on Wind and Wuthering and um, "And Trick of a Tail. But beyond that, not really my scene. Um, anyway, six studio albums released on the 18th of November 1974 by Charisma Records. Um, it uh, got into the not top 10 of the UK charts, but it peaked at 41 on the Billboard US 200 charts. Um, at, at, the, at the moment of releasing their album, it was the longest album they'd produced. It's the first double album. Uh, and I think that it being a double album is probably the right thing for it, um, because they would not have got the uh, the emotion and emotiveness across on a single album i have got in my collection somewhere a single version of it they did release it around the world uh where they cut a lot out just to try and sell it as a see if they could package it differently it doesn't quite work you lose all of side three and four i'm not quite sure how how it, it even is sort of i've got to find it i think it's any on a. have got it on a cd i don't have it on vinyl i could also be imagining it i'm sure i thought i had a copy of it but anyway i thought it was french but anyway, again that could be wrong those that can google it and find out until if I'm, if I'm if i'm just imagining it um there was a lot of uh a lot of progressive album uh, bands were playing in and with a thing called a concept album now these days concept albums are not again not too much a dirty word um because you know, particularly in the heavy metal field, um, you know, Operation Mindcrime by Queen's Reich uh, is a good example of um, of modern metal You in know, a, a, in a, telling a progressive story. Now, concept albums, those, are again, not sh- uh, f- uh, sure what they are. It basically is, instead of just being an album... So the reason records were called albums is because when they first released 78s on wax... Um, shellac uh, discs and uh, records they would could only get a certain amount of music on one side and so they would be bought maybe for 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 a suite of music say like Handel's messiah or um halts the planets or what you know or something like that you know wagner they would all be put um they would be put into a, a like a big folio like a photo album but eight or nine of them, maybe even 10 up to 12 in some albums. And because it was like a photo album, the term album comes about, is born. So the concept album is, instead of just being a, a loosely patched together, a collection of musical ideas, which is what happens with most records, um, it, this, they, they sort of, the band tries to, um, emote a story through music and through lyrics and through concept. So from the beginning of the record to the end of the record, you follow a storyline. And there are some brilliant ones out there. Um, of course, you know, Marillion's Misplaced Childhood. Uh, again, you know, Land Down on Broadway. Uh, if you want to look at um, Rick Wakeman's um, Journey to the Centre of the Earth uh, or his, you know... Um, Henry VIII and his Six Wives. There's a lot of... I mean, um, I know that Alan Parsons' project, uh, The Tales of Mystery Imagination, is not possibly, I would call, a concept album, but it's a collection of all of Poe's. Uh, it's music inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. So in theory, it's a concept because that is the concept. It doesn't have to be a story. I think what people get wrong with concept albums is that they think it has to be... You know, you have to have protagonists and direction and that's not always the case Uh, you could have a concept album if the for instance you did um you put all of i don't know monty python's sketches to heavy metal you could it would be python metal wouldn't it it would be that would be the concept i like the idea of that by the way so anyone out there is listening to that um, i'm all for it um you know what i mean so there is where the concept uh sits. And 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 Genesis at that time had not done a concept. Had then done long suites of music with stories that were conceptual. As I said before, um, you know, the wonderful and amazing Supper's Ready or Cinema Show something like that. You know, they're all you know, the Battle of Epping Forest and so on. Um that they they had just they needed to do something different and they sat down and thought they wanted to be they want to be a step of the game they don't want to be the same thing all the time and so they decided to do a concept album a longer double album Um, following, they just followed their wonderful 1973 sellout tour and um, epic album of uh, Selling England by the Pound also one of my favourite albums of all time which I got to see Stephen Hackett um, do a year or so ago uh, in fall with my good friends, uh, Mark and John, and and it was just, it was really, uh, it was uh, life changing. Is is too big a word, but but is apt. I really, really, I did. When they played, uh, I know what, I like in your wardrobe, but I did cry. I'm not going to deny that, guys. I sat there and. Um, Saw Stephen Hackett playing the guitar solo to one of my favourite songs of all time, and I literally just I did. I wept a little bit just inwardly to myself. I just introspectively had my own moment, but anyway, I, I'm digressing. I'm digressing. I'm digressing. So they'd just come off this amazing tour this amazing album, and they went into record uh, straight into a Welsh. Uh, it, no, sorry, sorry, not in Wales. I apologise. They went straight to Hadley recording studio, it's Hadley Manor now the trouble with Hadley Manor is it was an old um, reform school an old poor prison so for people where if you couldn't afford your debts you'd go there and you'd work off your debts to society before you could be let free and most of the time they perished in a very horrible Victorian manner. Um, now when they got there uh, the band before, and it's not been disclosed which was the band before, I'm sure it, those would know there's someone out there that would know who the band was there before but they got there and the place was full of squalor. It was uh, full of rats. It was excrement on the walls um, in a very bad way. And and to all intents and purposes, I did once see an interview with Peter Gable when he said that the the premises was quite haunted. Um, they had a lot of experiences um, late at night when they were trying to mix and record, or not mix sorry, just um, rehearse. Uh, they got a lot of issues. Machines not working, lights going on and off, um, noises that would interrupt the recordings and so on. So, pretty, um, pretty interesting, interesting start to what I would consider a very interesting album. Sorry, I'm having some tea. Um, now, they chose to. Um, to make this album at a quite an interesting time in the band's um career because also oh, i'm just moving moving paper around my notes Sorry, guys um, um it was the band was full of tension real bad tension oop, there's oop, oop. hear that that was my sorry i have a mic and i've got to get a new one I keep if it come, every time i touch the bloody thing it makes a humming noise um anyway sidetrack. Uh, they had a real sort of um, issue within the band, like a lot of bands. They've been together for, you know, at that time coming up to close to um, sort of seven or eight years. And, you know, they've been at university together, most of them, except Phil and Steve. And um, as it does with a lot of these, these bands, tension arises because if you, when you meet when you're young, um, you grow, don't you? And as you're growing together, like a family like my family in particular, um, they just moved apart. They just separated because they're different people. And you know, there was there was divorce going through band members, there was um there was uh marriages, there was um child people um, childbirth, you know, all sorts of things that were happening. Um Peter Gabriel, for instance, um his first wife Julie was having her first child and uh, it was a rather tricky and uh, and um, hard labour um, for her and for Pete and uh, and the band weren't very uh, very helpful and, and then retrospectively Mike Rutherford has said in uh, in, the f- in the future that he wished he'd been more understanding. They they all were a bit um, a bit aggressive and a bit standoffish with what was unfortunately a sad or hard time for both of Pete and his wife. Um, But, you know, again, as I said, people do and say things, um, particularly in art creative environments. Um, And also at the same time, Pete disappeared for a a month on end because um, he was sort of hijacked by William Friedkin, the director and writer of Exorcist. Um, Peter had seen um, sorry, William had seen Peter's writing on the 1973 live album, Live Genesis one of the, some of the notes Genesis Live, sorry, some of the notes like that he'd written some surrealist notes and what he'll make a, write, a really good screenwriter so he sort of got Pete at his lowest ebb and off they went um, causing all sorts of chagrin as you can imagine with the band there they are, three months in this horrible place trying to write music and Poof, off goes their their lead songwriter and vocalist um you know for good reasons his wife having a baby but then because he just wants to go and write this script with William um and William found out that he would split the band up if they kept doing this project so because he's a big genesis fan he sort of, sort of was like no I'm not having I'm not having that on my consciousness this is only um this is only conscience this is only a a, a whim idea like it's just it's just spitting into the wind so Pete uh, rejoined the band um, to make we carry on recording the album uh, it um, they moved from from there from oh, they moved oh, damn it I'm so sorry guys um, they moved from um, from this the, I'm gonna move the speaker one second um, they moved from Hadley, uh, Headley uh, then after then to the place where they would finally um, lay down most of the music, Glass Pants Studios in Wales. What a great name, uh, Glass Pants Studios, I love it. Um, and that's where they would mainly jam sessions that, that they would record. And that's how Genesis used to record quite uh, frequently. They would jam um, and take from the jam that, those pieces of music go forward that's why a lot of their music is so unpredictable and um and different to most structured modern music of the time in the early 70s this album also for me feels the beginning of the end um for Stephen Hackett as well because even though he recorded two more albums with the band afterwards I feel that um his presence on um Selling about the pound was so huge, I said the solo in a fourth of firth is so amazing that I think there might have been some I don't know some jealousies. Who knows? Because the they weren't they didn't go he didn't go to university with them like the rest of the like Gabriel and, and and so on did. Him and Collins were separate. They were later involvements and um, after Andrew Andy Phillips left Anthony Phillips left. That's when Steve came in. And uh, I just feel that if you listen to the album if you listen to the albums in order um, particularly list after listening to uh, Selling and then so listen to this album you will find it feels it's much more Tony Banks orientated so there's no wrong with the, the fact that it's very keyboard heavy and there's a lot of people out there good friends of mine and I've mentioned him before, John. John loves his keyboard heaviness and because he's a keyboard player, also a good talented guitarist as well, but he's still, he's still a very talented keyboard player, and um, or pianist, whatever. Um, and he's very laden in that respect. I don't. F- I, I, I. There are some lovely, um, and we'll talk about the um, the music itself in the second part, the second show. But just just on that respect, on that respect, it's quite. Um, there's a few pieces of really nice classical guitar in it, and some really to be okay for some good um, electric lead guitar. But it is very um, almost like he's not there. Uh, I saw, a, very lucky, um, earlier in the year. I went I went back to visit my dad in England, and I saw a musical box do um, the entire Land Rises out on Broadway, and it was something stunning and. I was focusing heavily on Steve because I'm a big Steve fan. Watching him, I was at the Hams of Odeon, so or the Apollo now. But it's still the Odeon to me, and I was looking down on him, and I thought, "Yeah, you really don't have as much to do in this album as I really often thought you did." Um, it is much. It does feel like a very Tony Banks trip. Anyway, so where was I? Back on that one. So um, they've moved to Glass Pant Studios in Wales and this is where they start to do their jamming. Um, I'm going to go and get some fresh tea, sort of my mic it doesn't hum anymore, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you on the other side. There's more to learn about this amazing album coming right up. Welcome back, guys. I keep hitting the mic. God, I'm having one of those afternoons. Um, As I said before, at the beginning of the episode, just towards the end there, that they all moved, they all located back to to Glasspan Studios in Wales to lay down um, the album. Now, it was a time when Gabriel was off away, and so um, most of the music was laid down without him being there. And that comes across. I think that really does come across in the album and its feel. It doesn't. F- it even though it is my favourite album of all time, I, truly I think it is. Um, it 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 does not. It does feel um, sort of antiseptic in the in a, compared to the more warm and um, deeper tones of the previous albums and I think that comes back to one of two things. Firstly, Glasspan Studios doesn't have uh, its own recording studio so they had to use a mobile studio, use the islands records mobile studio um, and for you um, you know, uh, music nuts here, I'm going to try and find what I wrote down, hang on bear with me lots of scribbling Where is it? Here we go. Um, it was Glass Pant Manor, sorry. Uh, bar, and they basically used, they used two times uh, 3M 24-track recorders, a Helios electronic 30-input console. Now, Helios, um, every heavy rock album made in England from 69 to 79 was made on a Helios. Um, excuse me, that phone's ringing in the background. Ignore that. I want, no one's... Not, sorry, there we go. It's live... One second i'm going to pause until that bloody thing stops ringing don't even be telemarketers anyway you know I'm not, call, I'm not going to call your home number anymore anyway so yes so everything between 69 and 79 was recorded on that. It's a british company um they had they used Altec monitors and two a62 Studer tape mastering machines um it was engineered by david hutchins and produced by the last production by them by john burns um now what, what see, my, Mike Rutherford has said um, uh, on, on, it, on interviews is that he thinks the sound of the lamb is the best they've ever did because it wasn't recorded in a studio. He feels that the... Um, because they recorded in, in sort of... Did some really interesting things. John and um, Pete did some very interesting things vocally. They recorded um, in bathrooms uh, around the house. They recorded in cow sheds to get certain vocalizations and Phil Collins played in in the in the barn um and he was trying to copy Neil Young's drum sound because Neil Young records in his barn we used to record in his barn so there's this sort of wild live fluid sound to it but it still sounds to me a little bit antiseptic and I think it's because because it was like and and I also equate this to the white album The White Album um, is also, I think, similar to this because the band, the Beatles at the time were falling apart in some respect um, over each other, over the way they were recording, wanting to have their own input, not enough input from each of each other and then you get this sort of like disjointed, um, crazy album, which the White Album is, Um, but this, the, the trouble is, what the band were trying to do with this album is they're trying to make a a concept album, a story album, and doing that and being doing separate is really hard because to be to create a concept album, you've got to you've got to gel all of you together because otherwise it's going to be, um, as I said, un unbalanced. Um, while Pete was away, Phil Collins muted the idea that they should. Um, do uh, the album as a instrumental. This was uh, this was mainly because Phil thought that Pete's um, verbal diarrhea on the last couple of albums it was too heavily um, uh, lyrically dense. Now it was it was poo pooed and, and rightly so because one of the joys and one of the real joys for me and I you genuinely mean this um, with the Genesis album is. Pete's lyrics because you can listen. There is not one time you can listen to his out his lyrics and take it all in. I can't tell you I know what he's talking about and half what he's singing, um, but I love it because every time I hear something different. And every time, like when I was restudying this album um, for these two shows, because uh, I, I play it once a month um, for myself anyway. But I was trying to re-listen to it. And see if there's anything lyrically that would, after finding out about the tensions in the band, if there was anything lyrically, and there is, and I'm going to come across that in the second show. So um, please do join me on the second one because I think that's going to be a really, really interesting one. Those are, are big Genesis fans, or even if you're not and just like the idea of lyric um, appreciation, this might be one for you. So they've, they're there, they're recording their album. Um, now, the uh, they experimented, as I said, vi- you know, vocally, and um, it it took two weeks to um, to record the backing tracks, which is not that long. Once they got it written down, it's pretty good, but there was some absolute nightmares in the mixing because Phil Collins would go because the record label were like, we want this now. We want it out as as is the way when studios and labels are paying money they want it out and they want that product they want to ride the wave of the of the huge success that they had with um selling england by the pound um and so they were sort of forced as you can all as in most of the times not so much these days i don't think um but back then bands were forced to have x amount of records out x amount of time and uh Phil Collins apparently would spend night, like all night, uh, mixing and and producing it, and then Tony and um, Mike would come in the morning and remix it because, because as Phil would say, he got really, absolutely so bogged down by it that he was making all these um, strange decisions and errors, and uh, he couldn't concentrate because I mean you you know doing 14 hours of mixing an album every night for instance i mean he, that's a it's a really long day isn't it and, and he's sort of um and that, and that wasn't a glass pop sorry that was that was mixed um it was mixed at the island um studios in Notting Hill gate um which is in uh, uh which is in west london um it was, uh, so it sort of went through several places and it started off at Hadley, then it moved to Glass Glasspant, then it goes to Notting Hill Gate, the Island Studios. Um, it's uh, It was, you can tell, and again, you can tell, it sort of feels like it's been passed through different hands. Although, um, this being John's last, um, John Byrne's last production for the band, you can almost... Tell the difference when they move from this from from the lamb um onto um Wind and Wuthering and trick of the Tail, it does start to sound a little uh a little thinner uh, John had this way of making a big sound um and a an array of way of um he's not like a lot of those genius engineers and producers um that sort of can get more out of the out of the analog equipment than anyone else could do like they just do things this sort of alchemy. Um they, they get from that they get from that right they just do now i'm going to talk about briefly quickly um, i'm going to talk about the we've talked about sorry we've talked about the the band how they came about the concept well, having a concept album issues within the band this, this just happens and I think sometimes issues within bands make for. A more exciting album, so you think? Sometimes that little frisson, a little bit of spark, a little bit of anarchy and anger, a little bit of resentment, um, sort of I don't know, you know, sort of uh, what was it? What was my dad would say? It uh, gilds the lily, right? So um, we have, and 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 also when we, when they were thinking about the concept. We'll talk about the concept a little bit later on, actually. But when they were originally talking about the thing of a concept album... Now, I've got to read this, because I, I wrote it down, and I don't know I can remember it. The original idea was by Mike Rutherford. One second. Ooh, radio. Listen to this. Quality radio. Oh, here we go. Here we go. It was a bit of a... I have to say, when I first read this, I thought, really? Am I really reading this? Um, OK, so... It was originally um, uh, the concept was it going to be of the Little Prince, um, which is a fairy tale story, um, and but and and the band well particularly Pete he said no it's too twee, yes written by Anton de Saint um, a French writer uh, and. Can you imagine? It would have been, I don't know, it'll be like chocolate boxy and and it's so Tony Banksy as well. I'm not having a go at Tony Banks, but um, a little bit too. If there's anything flowery and remotely, um, I don't know, remotely sort of overly classical, it's usually Tony that's the problem in the in the band. But that's just me being, you know, like, whatever. Um, so thank goodness that they 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 let um Peter uh decide what the concept would be. His idea was to make a modernist um punk fairy tale, even though it was pre punk, this is um but you know what I mean? It was sort of like an angular, edgy, non pastoral, completely noning uh, British concept. Um, set it in New York, which he did um with a character called Rail who is a Puerto Rican um who lives in in New York a Puerto Rican youth and he's he's his journey of discovery now there was a bit of bit of issues because he chose Rail uh, r a e l um as the name because it was non uh ethnic based It's not it's not attached to any particular ethnicity but at the same time the who had released um who are you? Oh no, sorry. Hang on, not who are you? Wrong, wrong one. one, one second. One second. No, the who sellout. Sorry. Um, now it didn't stop him using the name. He carried on with it. Um, it was a bit. It annoyed Pete apparently quite sort of prodigiously for a little while. But you know, it's like anything. Great Nate. Great minds think alike, don't they? Doesn't matter, really. Uh, both albums are equally as fantastic. Although I would say that the lamb is a much more accomplished album than who sell out but i love the who this i'm not to go so you know i love the who so yes, yeah, so there's rail and it's his it's his um coming of age his sexual um awakening his uh surrealism he's it's it's his journey through the, the streets and subways and the darks um parts of new york and his mind in the 70s it uh, it I mean, it it uh, it was described as a sort of um, an allegory. Um, a, a, sorry, a, a version of the Christian allegory of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, it was based, you know, has um, Jungian or um, f- uh, philosophy feels to it. So that's Carl Jung. It also has this. Uh, if you've ever seen um, Alexandra Jodorowsky's. Uh, El Topo if you have seen it you won't forget it um, one of the craziest movies ever made there's not um, it sold out when it first showed on small cinemas in New York for a month, for a year in advance there's midnight screenings it's um, it's not something you'd watch with your family and friends uh, if they've got any kind of issues because it's it's wacky surreal violent um drug-related... It's a trip, basically. People used to get stoned and watch it. So it is... You know, there's some very, very odd bits in it. i uh, just to say that, at least. There's some, uh, you know, things with dwarves and um, and all sorts of things. Anyway, he also made one of my favourite movies of all time was Santa Sangrella. It uh, That is... I'm not going to go on about that movie because this is not the programme for it, but you can see why uh, when you watch El Topo or Santa Sangre, You can see... Where the surrealism comes from, I think Pete was also very influenced with the Dali-esque side of life and surrealism in general. Uh, like a lot of people were in the early to mid '70s, um, drug use was on the on the rise. Um, people wanted to experiment and see beyond um, the, the dullness of life that the '70s, early '70s, was leading, particularly in the UK. Um, and so they were reaching out for everything unusual and, and Pete reached out for this so um, he name checks in this album some really interesting uh, people um, like he name checks uh, and I didn't know this was I, I've sung this lyric um, in my head and to this music for ever since I was 15 when I first heard the album and he mentions people like um, Cole Chessman he says Carl Chessman sniffs the air. Um now I didn't know who Carl Chessman was until I did some research literally yesterday. He was a mass serial rapist, um, that was convicted in nineteen forty nine and, and 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 um executed for his, his his uh his crime. So I mean, you know, again, we I'm sure there are millions of people like that have listened to this album Sung that lyric and had no idea. When when he says Carl Chessman sniffs the air, well, that it's quite revolting when you think about it, right? But these using these American imageries he uses. Um, uh, I've got. Uh, I've also got uh, Lenny Bruce. He mentions, and we all know Lenny Bruce is. If you don't know Lenny Bruce is, he was a, a stand-up comedian who re- rewrote the book on how to offend people and use your your words. Uh, on a stage to um to to denounce stupidity racism um uh, xenophobia anti-semitism um and he was found dead in his bath at a young age people say he was murdered by the fbi but um you know it's getting all these conspiracy theories um he was arrested for um for using um, the obscenity laws, so it was one of the, it was the sixties. You know, it was the same time as the whole JFK thing. You know, um, and you know the Martin Luther King and so on. And he also mentions um, Groucho Marx, uh, Marshall McLuhan. I didn't know who Marshall McLuhan was. I had to check that. And Marshall McLuhan was a was a Canadian um, philosopher. Uh, who founded the media theory, which is the effect of media, i.e. newspapers at that time, cinema and TV, uh, on the mind of the populace. Wonderful um, forward thinking. And now I've listened to that. and I listen, We're going to talk about the lyrics and stuff in the next episode, but when I listen to that now, um, it makes me think, oh, now I know what the lyric means. So he mentions Howard Hughes, the... You know, the famous uh, movie mogul um, businessman who was a recluse and who, uh, you know, famously was ripped off by The Simpsons with Mr. Burns, where he wears, you know, uh, Kleenex tissue boxes on his shoes, on his feet for shoes, and keeps his urine. Uh, (laughs) um, Take that that episode out, it's very funny. Um, And of course, he also name checks uh, Evil Knievel. Now, I loved Evil Knievel. As a kid, I had, he was, uh, for those young people who don't know who Evel Knievel is, or was, he was a daredevil stuntman that used to wear a white, like Elvis kind of outfit, and he would leap buses on his bike, and he would do crazy things, break his body for all sorts of reasons, do these crazy stunts. And we used to watch him on TV, and one of my favourite ever things was I would watch, um, I had his toy, like it was a wind-up bike, um, and I loved it, I absolutely loved it, and... Um, you could wind the bike up and you'd come with these plastic buses and you could and ramp and you could try and get it to jump the Well, action figure to jump the buses. It was fantastic. Anyway, I'm sidetracking. I'm sidetracking quite diversely there. Um, so the, the it's this surreal story, um, which we will cover in the first part of the second show because it's quite... Uh, an interesting story i don't want to give it all away now so where are we we've we've got a band that's um on the edge of sort of falling apart we've got a band that's produced five incredibly diverse um wonderfully musical brilliant um, pieces of music in an era when young people and I'm talking about you know, 13 to 18 year olds would happily sit down and listen to a piece of music that was 27 minutes long uh, not a time that lasted that long punk came along and sort of completely smashed that out of the park uh, sadly, to some extent sadly um, so it's, it's sort of in some respects punk made music but it also dumbed it down um and that isn't a bad thing for 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 people who just want entertainment it's not a bad thing but it it's like um i have the same issue at the moment where i struggle to watch a movie all the way through i'm i'm so used to watching tv length episodes of things you know um and the youtube segment stuff and all that kind of thing that now if i sit and watch a movie trying to get myself to concentrate can be quite tricky um for me anyway, and I think that's the same with the way we consume music now, and that's what's happened with why prog was such a wonderful thing, it was a time to interact, when I put on Lamb now, and I put it on again yesterday, um, you know, go into a darkened room, put my headphones on, put the needle on the record, and just let, it's so rich and dense, and so, like having a fine, heavy meal, it's lovely fully full courses you know not just a quick snack and a, and, a, and a sugar burst a boost um anyway so where were we we got this we have got a period in time where music is long we've got an album a band that's made five amazing albums they're going to the studio with the the man the main man of the band and i, I mean I, I, they're all main men of the band but the lyricist and singer the front person at that particular time in music was the main person, right? Let's be honest. Most people would know who Peter Gabriel was, or who Freddie Mercury was, or who um, you know, uh, who Roger Daltrey were. But they might not always remember the rest of the members, of the names of the band, because they—they're the ones, the David Bowies of the world, the the um, you know the Phil Linnets of this, you know, the, these people. So they were the big characters, and so going into it with a, him already distracted. Um, wanting to go and do other things, family life and issues getting in the way, um, life in general getting in the way, uh, and a studio then sort of hounding on the door for this next big thing. Um, they go and to make this album and they decided to make a concept album. And they decide not to make it a twee, you know, chocolate box thing that, that was muted, and they decided that, that they will go with, with Gabriel's. Um, very difficult to follow um, surrealist or topo inspired Jungian um, New York um, landscape driven nightmare Uh, and it is it can be quite nightmarish particularly when you get them to sign three and four uh, towards the end of the record and they end up in a studio that's haunted that's smelly and disgusting they can't concentrate the band split up for a little while Pete goes away Um, They then end up in Wales where they have to use a portable recording studio which stretches them with their sound, which makes them sound different and better, I think. And then we come to the story. Now, that will be mentioned next week, guys. I'm going to leave you on on tenderhooks about the story because if you don't know the album, do me a favour, go and listen to it now. Um, And then when we talk about the story and the lyric and the music... In the second part um, of the show, you'll understand, or 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 it might same as me quite not understand what's happening, <laughs> why, what's going on, um, and you might even also pick up the fact that Stephen Hackett isn't as predominant in the uh, mix, and it is more keyboard-driven um, Banksian sort of muse. There's, I, I think, Collins. Um, is at one of his bests here I think this is probably his best work with the art uh, with the band um, I think that's because he gets let free um, in that studio freedom of the barn with the sound being bigger and splashier and denser and open uh, it's mic'd differently uh, they weren't all in the studio together recording they recorded separately a lot of the time so um, that might also come down to it but as I said um that's the, coming to the end of this first part. I hope you've learned something. I really enjoyed learning about the ins and outs. I'm very nervous as I said, because this is sort of the holy grail of albums for me when it comes to prog and for my life in general, and I don't really want to um do it disjustice. So if I've missed anything or you want me to talk about anything more about it, please just let me know and I will Um, do a third episode and add more in if you really want otherwise it's one and two Um, the second one will be slightly longer because there's a lot more to cover this was just the build up to the album the band itself and the ins and outs of recording it so that's me for this first part Um, I'm going to go off um, make some more notes record the second part uh, and uh, we'll chat to you next week when we learn all about the lyric and the story of the lamb lies down on broadway one of the greatest prog albums if not the greatest concept album ever made uh, now again that is purely my my idea and my um feeling it might not be what you think uh, i'm not saying it's set in stone but for me that's how i feel uh, an album that has lived with me and has been part of my life for 35 years and something that has grown ever so stronger with me. Um and has always been there when I needed it. And I think that's a very important thing about albums like this, isn't it? They do emote times in your life and they emote um and they help you through tough times, and this has always helped me through certain times that have happened um, and right now you know not that you need to know my friends but my father is very very sick um, possibly not going to make it to the end of the year I would love I hope he did but um, this album will help me get through that and this show has helped me get through these times I'm dealing with so I'm very thankful that you listeners Even if you've listened to twenty minutes, if you've not even listened to, if it's your first time you've listened, I'm just appreciative that you've come along and listened to it. Do go and listen to the album; it might change your life. You never know. Uh, You might think it's absolute wank, and I'm all with that as well. I don't mind what you think um, because it's subjective, and music is about subjection and reaction. um, And let's not be too critical. Okay, just open our minds, let's listen to something if you're willing to listen to some of the heaviest aggressive black metal and dark death metal I'm sure that you can open your minds to some beautifully, lyrically um, uh, dense and diverse uh, pieces of music that Genesis 2 give out and put out and you know did put out I should say anyway, that's me wobbling on and waffling on for the rest of this episode so talk to you next week when we'd go deeper into the lamb...